Hey guys, this is Emmett. Welcome to your weekly installment of Exhaust, your podcast about why nothing feels possible. I am here with none other than John. So first of all, this episode is a big thank you to everyone who's supported the pod, especially those from the beginning. This is for patrons and non-patrons alike, because this is our one-year anniversary episode. We launched about this time last year, and I can't believe that we've actually made it this long yeah i was just thinking that the other day when someone was talking about putting together a podcast that releases once a week and i was just thinking like that's not easy yeah (laughs) and i was like oh there's a reason i know that (laughs) (laughs) i do that actually yeah yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, but it's been like possible because i think that it's like really rewarding and a lot of fun and very gratifying that people seem to enjoy it yeah exactly just so here's some stats for you guys we have over fifty thousand total downloads i think it's like fifty six thousand. but to me this was the most telling thing so in september of last year when we launched our monthly downloads were for that month were 803 not bad so last month this is august our total downloads were 6,052. So that's some pretty astounding growth. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, thank you, everyone. I'm sure there's some of you from our very first episode where we um, like didn't edit anything. (laughs) I didn't know what we were doing. I think I was still using Bandcamp then and it was just like a total nightmare. And that's not the world we live in anymore, thank God. But yeah, and that was also before I knew how to like equalize the volume and compress anything. So everybody's hung in there. So in honor of our one year celebration, we wanted to do a Q&A episode. So we asked you guys to submit some questions on the Patreon and uh, we're going to handle those today and we're going to read them off. So I'm going to go in the order that I copy and pasted them into this document I have. So this one starts off, Emmett and John. First off, I'd like to express that Exhaust is currently my favorite podcast to listen to, and I appreciate the genuine humility and insight you both bring to your conversations. Thank you, Ben, who wrote this. I will now be self-conscious for the rest of the interview, for the rest of this episode. As a guy in my early 20s, I'm particularly interested in an observation you've both brought up frequently over the course of the pod, namely that many young people you encounter today confess a profound suspicion or discomfort that their peers seem to be apathetic towards anything entailing long-term personal commitments. From big picture involvements like electoral politics and activism to more private matters like communal, familial, and even sexual relationships. Personally, this is a source of distress in my interactions with friends and classmates my age, and I'd like to hear you both elaborate upon your diagnoses of the problem, as well as put forward any potential strategies or coping mechanisms you'd suggest for someone who does care deeply about these things and would like to cultivate a similar concern in their close friends and acquaintances. Or maybe this is the wrong approach altogether. And in light of the quote-unquote impossibility of the future, we should instead seek to meet others where they are at in this regard and go about quietly cultivating our own lives to the greatest quote-unquote possible extent. I'm not quite sure where I stand on this. I'd love to hear more of your thoughts. Thanks, Ben. 
So thanks again, Ben, both yeah. for the compliments and for the very difficult question that is interesting to ponder. I don't know, John, what do you think? Yeah, there's a lot there. I might want to take it in stages. Um, yeah, I think we'll have to. I think the first part, could you give me like the first clause again? Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to so mess it up. what he's talking about is he's saying like, he's noticed that as we've talked about, young people have found suspicion or discomfort with any long-term commitments. Those could be macro or micro. So he says this is a source of distress in his interactions with his classmates and peers. And he would like us to elaborate on our diagnosis of the problem, as well as put forward any potential strategies for someone who does care and would like to cultivate a similar inclination in friends and acquaintances. Right. Yeah, I don't, that's, that's pretty tough. It reminds me how in, in Lash's book, The Minimal Self, he talks about how a lot of art is basically an expression of this inability to bridge like an inner and outer world. And I feel like I, that I always remember that part of the book because I guess it kind of resonated a little bit with me. That seems to be kind of a big facet of like a lot of novels you might read or even visual art to some extent kind of giving up on being able to like talk to you about anything like that's just something that maybe you could uh, give as a reading and part of it might probably be something like that just like you know i do feel a little bit pessimistic about my ability to like reach the world anymore because you're like this problem seems intractable if it is even a problem if it could be described in those terms because you know, it's, it can just be kind of overwhelming, but I think that you could probably tease apart some of that stuff. Like I would say people don't seem to be like interested in political commitments is one thing. And like, people don't seem to be interested in lifelong partnerships of a like romantic slash domestic nature. I would maybe treat separately because that one, at least I will never give up hope on. <laughs> and I'll always cling to the dream yeah, that one totally. day the household will be formed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> However, you know, I don't know. That's the political stuff. I guess that's why the podcast is here in some respects, like to sort of talk about whether or not politics is going to be possible. And when you sort of, you know, like I feel like we'll all keep talking about Lash because it's, and, and McIntyre, because I think they both kind of did something pretty interesting. I feel like they both gave a typology of like modern ways of living and being. And one of those was like protest. And they both, I think, probably helpfully in different ways distinguish that from like classical, political, whatever that means. But, you know, like we'll say like. I don't know, some kind of active personal engagement with the act of government, democratic politics, you might say, of some kind. They see those as like separate and not even close to the same thing. And I think that most people we meet today, if you are like, oh, yeah, are you into politics? Are you political or you care about issues? If they say, yeah, that's they're going to be probably of the protest type. Like that's mm -hmm. pretty much almost hegemonically how like I guess an everyday average person would understand that word and how they could be involved in something 
would be like protest activity. And if you're not that interested in that and interested in thinking and talking about like what's possible beyond that and stuff like that, it can often be very difficult to like find anybody who, who will even try like be able to get on that wavelength with you, which I don't think is their fault or anything. It's just like, it takes a lot to get there from where you start out being born and raised like in America these Mm -hmm. days. I don't know. What do you think about that? I feel like I need to have my thoughts bounce around a bit more. No, same. I mean, yeah, obviously I hold out the hope for romance that John does. So just this is a little teaser. We had a default friend on, her real name is Kat. She has since dropped the pseudonym mostly. But Kat and I are working on something that will take a look at the way relationships have changed. I don't want to get too much into it because we're in the very, very early stages of working on it. But that'll be a separate project. So we'll probably handle a lot of that now. But I still hold out hope because I think you kind of have to. Otherwise, it's just like... It's like too black pilling to not believe in love. Like it's like I can't do it. Yeah, I, a couple of the most recent like Curtis Yarvin newsletters have turned into a dating column, mm. where he answers like questions about relationships. But his read is that once people are into their thirties, a lot of the social programming drops away, where mm-hmm. you have this kind of like built in like acculturated defense mechanisms against like anything that would require you to i won't even want to say commitment but like responsibility like you'll have to commit to something but then be bound by it which Mm -hmm. is kind of what the whole thing entails and i think he was saying like a lot of what we term codependence or whatever is sort of like a pathologization of like being in a committed relationship, at least Mm -hmm. the way people use that term quite often Yep. where it's like, Oh, I owe you something at some time, you know, like I can't just do whatever I want all the time. That's violence and it's codependent. It's unhealthy or whatever. But he was saying optimistically that by your thirties, you're like, okay, I don't want what that's giving me anymore. So I'm willing to like take on something else. And I have no clue but I like would like to be hopeful about that point too, that like we're still not at a point where like the possibility of that is completely dissolved. Cause people like, I probably believe that deep down, like most people want that, especially the older you get and the more you face down the fact that like, if you don't have something like that, then you're just going to be like a 70 year old person who's alone. And like, there's a, there's a, there's a Jim Shepard story with a really dysfunctional narrator character, as usual. And it has this great line that says, the longer you go alone, the weirder you get. And the weirder you get, the longer you go alone. <laughs> Which I think is pretty, <laughs> pretty spot yeah. on. Yeah, so, so I still hold it out there. In my own experience, what Yarvin's describing rings true. I think what we'll see is like, an uptake in people that remain disaffiliated deeper into their thirties, however, and that might have to do with some of the stuff that's happening in like the political realm, which I think is also basically the economic realm in defiance of liberalism. I state that. And, you know, it's interesting. I'm trying to figure out how to talk about this for a piece I have coming out in tack, but like, a few things happen, obviously, in 
the 60s and 70s that radically repattern American culture. And we talk about Vietnam and we talk about the civil rights struggle and those things are huge, obviously, especially the dawning of the counterculture and then the birth of like true mass media that just like continues unabated until now. So I think like one thing we leave out is the energy crisis in the 70s and how much pessimism that created to be the global power and then realize that you were actually dependent on natural resources like anyone else. And America had like decided, I'm using America like, you know, synecdochically, I'm not saying, or whatever. Like I'm not, what I mean to say, I don't literally mean like every American decided this, but it was culturally and politically typified by you know, Nixon telling Khrushchev or whoever, like, oh, we want you to be able to pick your politicians, like you pick your fridge. If you go back to the Kyung Min Sun episode, we talked with him about that quote. And what I mean to say, and I think I brought this up in the last episode as well, that we just did. So sorry if I'm being redundant, but we said, okay, our idea of progress is just this consumer's republic thing. But then what happens when that whole thing is undermined? Well, what does this have to do with where politics are now? I think it became difficult along with the end of Fordism and the death of the Keynesian economy. Like all of this is happening at the same time. This is an crazy, the seventies are a crazy decade, right? We always talk about the sixties. I think we could stand to talk about the seventies a little bit more where mass media diffusion, counterculture and Basically, the slow cancellation of the future all sort of happen at once. And with that, some interesting things happen and where we say like, okay, we can't really say that there's like an objective social good, right? So we're just going to defer that question. Like, how could you believe that? This is like an old argument from Federalist 10, you know? So it has its antecedents there. And it's a legitimate perspective because it's, easy to point empirically to society and see like, well, there's so many factions. How could we all agree? How could we say what the, we know what the social good is. Unfortunately, that means we gave up on the contest of even temporary agreements on what the social good might be and deferred those to the market. The byword for this would be like neoliberalism. You put a market where once there was governance. Well, the time horizon of society is potentially forever. That's not really true of individual firms. Not yet, anyway. So that creates a sort of like entrenched short-termism. And I think part of the reason why individuals have a hard time getting themselves into a place where they can make a long-term political commitment is for a variety of reasons. But one among those is this, the problem as I've outlined it here. Our political will and skill for long-term thinking, in other words, for a truly conservative government that is interested in maintaining the state so that it can be handed down to posterity has everywhere evaporated. Now, did I keep bringing up mass media and all of those things? 
Well, because I think that creates greater emphasis on the spectacular nature of politics, where now politics is about creating niche media markets in which different signalers can rise to prominence. I mean, obviously you guys listen to podcasts. That's part of what's going on with the podcast market. Now, obviously political podcasts are never going to do as well as like true crime. Maybe that's actually good, you know, probably. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe we want it like that. However, the fact that so much of our political discourse is, is captured in this game of narcissistic signaling. And again, I don't mean narcissism just like pejoratively. I mean, like trying to build a world where the outer and inner, you can't really make a distinction between those things. You know, world is mirror for yourself is what I'm talking about here. I mean it in the Lashian sense. That's also created a type of short-termism that is built around social signaling rather than political action. I think that this is almost a hack point or at least a banal one, but its implications are still profound. And when we take these two things together, there's some other stuff going on here probably, but I think that those do a significant, they go a long way in diagnosing what the problem is. Right. So how would you get other people to start changing their mind about that? I think that the best I can do, I think some people are frankly just going to be more curious than others and want to have an explanation, right? Might be easiest to start with those of your friends and acquaintances, you know, but I think that part of it for me, and I'm a naturally curious person, was that there was a feeling of decontextualization and loneliness that needed to be addressed. And that could really only be addressed through contextualization and frankly, just being around people. The difficult part about being young, by the way, if you're young, most friendships are recent because you just haven't been around a long time. So as you get older, as you hold on to some of these people, it'll become clearer what long-term really means. I think that's part of what Yarvin's talking about. Some of this is just part of being young. If we want to be developmental about it, we can say your prefrontal cortex hasn't totally formed. And so for those for whom it has really not formed, it is almost impossible to think long-term. Whatever the explanation is, You know, whether it's just because you don't have much to compare it to, everything feels like a revolution when you're young because, again, you have nothing to compare it to, et cetera, et cetera. That stuff starts to fall away as you get older and you understand what it means to have skin in the game. Like when we're talking about, when we take a look at McIntyre's discussion on the Patreon episodes of After Virtue, and he talks about having a skill or a craft and realizing the virtues through practice of the craft, I think that might be an avenue with which to create long-term commitments is really just working shoulder to shoulder with people and striving for excellence and true excellence in what you're doing. You will have to, and for it to continue, cultivate the virtues together. And there's no such thing as like non-social ethics. 
right? No such thing as non-social politics either. So I don't think that that's a satisfactory answer. I do think that asking those questions are the right way to go about it to address the third part of the question that you should be trying to seek how to create friendships with people that have uh, baseline similar values. You don't want everybody to be like identical and to have groupthink, obviously. But, you know, it is right to ask that question. I think it's one of the questions to ask. So, yeah. yeah. I think the relationships in your life that endure just will because of things like that. And the ones that don't just won't. Mm -hmm. And that kind of sorts itself out without even your like conscious attention usually. Yeah. I mean, how long have you and I known each other? Like 10 years now? Yeah, at least. Something like that. I think this October, it's 10 years. I think next month. Yeah. And it it doesn't really require necessarily anything at a certain point because of like we're just talking about, I guess, if you have at least similar concerns and you kind of are just held together in some ways by that Mm -hmm. because it would be different if it was just like talking about metal or something once a year (laughs) yeah 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 Yeah, so far right and there's place in my life for those friendships for sure you know not all friendships need to be the same either that's the other thing i was that's kind of what i wanted to get into was i feel like that our questioner was rather astute when they kind of got ahead of themselves in their question and said, you know, but maybe it's not right to really think about your friends in terms of cultivating them in any one direction. And I think that's probably the right way to think about it in some ways, because mainly because I doubt you'll have any real success in cultivating people because most people usually have to like want to be cultivated. And then that would be more of a teacher student relationship. And then they wouldn't be your friends. Exactly. It would be a little bit different. And if you're talking about like your social context or whatever, you know, one of the things that I appreciate most, I guess, about people is the fact that they're really not me. <laughs> and I, yeah, thank having, you. you know, you, we had most of us at least who didn't have to go to work, spent a long time in our house for like the past year, and, you know, and that's finally not true for me. And I'm like, oh, yeah, like, even though a lot of people can be, like, annoying and stupid, it's still nice that they're there or something. And Mm -hmm. you can just be around them and some of them will become your friends or whatever and they'll be kind of different from you, but you'll get along and then you'll be able to, like, I don't know. There's just something, like, a baseline, like, primordial about that that is important to life, I think, just Mm -hmm. in terms of, like, living. And I think that... We are neither beasts nor gods. So yeah. we need each other, unfortunately, in some cases. Unfortunately in others. Yeah. The, I just learned this the other day, apparently, the like character for what we call humaneness or whatever and the Confucian virtues is the character. It's like the radical for person, and then it's two dashes for two. So it's like two people mm. in the ascent. That's like kind of the basic meaning of the character when we talk it's because it's translated as like humaneness humanity or whatever and it's kind of loosely like encompassed in all these different ways to try and get at the concept that you can't really directly say exactly what it is but 
you know, it seems like fairly fundamental to being alive mm-hmm. in some ways is this like fact that we're relating to other people. Oh, there's such a GK Chesterton little essay where he mm-hmm. reflects on how city society is really quite small because it's truly Rawlsian and that you go and you find your like affinity groups or whatever. And then you guys just hang out together and you don't have to meet anybody else or like deal with them really, except just, you know, sell me my products now, get out of my face, mm-hmm. I'm leaving, but how village society is consequently much more of the universe is something that you'll get to experience there because whether you like it or not, the annoying guy next door is next door and you have to deal with him and like, not even that, but like, you'll probably want to be friendly with him because you're going to have to see him every day. And that this kind of characterizes the like supposedly smaller world of the village. Um, you don't have really a choice who's around you, but in that way you'll meet so many different kinds of people that you never would have met in the city. Mm-hmm. That really typifies like being in Tallahassee for me, for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. But you know, it's yeah. I don't know if I can find or remember what the essay was, we can throw it up in the show notes if anyone's interested in it, but I don't know if we'll be able to do that. Yeah. Or but, we can do an app on it. If you find it later, I'd be interested oh, sure, in talking yeah. about it. It was like a classic Chesterton, like simple reflection that just turns into some like, you know, interesting observation about life. But, you know, that's for that stuff. I cannot hope to match anything in terms of what you were saying about U.S. history, but I can simply nod and concur. That all seems fairly salient and relevant to, to the problem. I definitely think that in lieu of being able to actually do anything, there is a certain pleasure in doing. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I I think that's something that we've probably keyed in on pretty early on in life is you aren't necessarily going to be able to like get your hands on something like this. That's like a lot bigger than you by yourself and do anything about it. There is definitely like a general comfort in the fact that you can understand it more, you know, like, I'm sure most of the people listening to this probably find like reading pleasurable and like learning things pleasurable enough that they'll probably look into things that most other people would be like, Oh, that seems really boring. Like, why would you do that? But you know, at least for me, I'm like, Oh, it's, it's very fun and easy to me to do because it kind of makes my life better in some way that's hard to describe. Yeah. Like, I think that's like the actual power of contextualization. Like you were saying, on some level is it somehow makes it easier to deal with or accept because you can at least think about it and it's not as bewilderingly vague Mm -hmm. and awful any longer well we need we need history to live one thing that i know we will do an episode at some point is like nietzsche's little essay on history for life because I think that will give us uh, a way to talk about some of the vaguer feelings that John and I are trying to figure out how to put into words. But the, it is amazing that you have to like come out and say like history is important for the sense of living a life. And you know, like we don't have a lot of traditions anymore. We don't have a lot of like communities that are really held together and have like shared lore anymore you know, that's all gone away. So 
what was like more a, a social anchoring through history has atrophied. And one of the ways that we can counterbalance that is to seek out context for ourselves. So with that, we're going to move down the question pipe to a shorter question. This one is from Devin, who says, not so much a question as an inquest. Would you do an episode on Christian mysticism? I'd love to hear the exhausted boys rap about Simone Weil and Edith Stein, Thomas Merton, Augustine, etc. Thank you for all the enjoyable discussions. I'm always looking forward to the next. Thank you, Devin. Yeah, I don't know, John, what do you think about that? Most of those names, I don't have any familiarity with at all, except for St. Augustine, which I think he's cool. Yeah, um, he's lit. And I would, um, I would be into doing an episode about him for sure. He's, I recently learned a little bit more about him and his whole thing. And, you know, it's very congenial, I think, overall. Like, there's just a lot there that you, I don't know, early Christianity is really interesting. Yeah, I it's mentally never, I never was able to like differentiate it too much from like late medieval Catholicism mm -hmm. or whatever. It was all kind of one big thing in my brain, like all Aquinas y, but like late antiquity, Roman Christianity, like all that stuff, a lot less was settled. So there, it's really, it can get weird and interesting in like cool ways. And mm -hmm. it's fairly overall, you know. I guess congenial is the word. It's just like, wow, I'm not being like psychologically assaulted by reading this, which is true of so many <laughs> other things. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Confessions is pretty astounding. I've only read some of City of God. I think there's a lot to talk about there. They're a little bit overwhelming as projects, less so the Confessions. It's a shorter book. I don't think we will touch City of God. I don't think we could do it justice. It's just too big. But uh, we can Yeah, it would be like a whole, it would be like a, a seminar. To do yeah, that. yeah. I don't know how we pull that off. And there are certain things I would want to do before I would do that that would be of comparable difficulty, both because I have more familiarity with them and because I think they're more germane to the podcast, uh, Thucydides being one example. But yeah, I think we could stomach some Simone Weil for sure. I think that would probably be the easiest and the most direct to some of what we talk about. So I'm a little bit familiar with her. I've got her selected essays uh, in the bookcase next to the bookcase on the right side of my desk. So I will take a look at that and find something, probably something for, from her book on like the need for roots would be important for what we're looking at. Her essay on the Iliad is amazing. I mean, I guess we could do that extracurricularly, so to speak, but I think to stay on theme, the roots segment from her selected is probably a good place for us to start. So yeah, definitely open to it. We'll go ahead and take that su suggestion. We'll go ahead and say that we'll do some ve, at least up front, you know, and maybe we'll get to some Augustine. Okay, great. So thanks, Devin. This next one is from Carlo, who seconds Devin's inquest and throws in Teresa of Avila, um, also a character I'm very fascinated in. So perhaps, and let's see. Also something, this is from Carlo, also something I've been dogged with and slowly finding relief from is what seems to be an encounter with one's own notion of the infinite. Not God as such, infinity as described by things like digital cameras, Zeno's paradox, and perhaps divergently quantum computing, etc. More than anything, I'd be curious to hear both your thoughts on whatever illustrations, experience of worldly and or divine infinity 
you found lastingly compelling. I totally adore the American Canon series. You guys are both wonderful. Thank you for your service. You never have to thank an enlisted man for their service, but I appreciate that. <laughs> um, no, thank you, Carlo. And I'm glad that people like the American Canon series so much. That has been like a surprise hit of the podcast, which is delightful to both of us. So yeah, the infinite, where do we begin? Well, I always, my interpretation of Zena's paradox, which isn't original to me, but I think it's a demonstration of the fact that you cannot map discrete quantities onto a continuous quantity. Like you can do it forever because they'll never be one for one commensurable. And that's probably a very deflationary answer, <laughs> but it's going to show the way that my mind is going to go with that question. Yeah. I don't know. It's infinite. That's probably something that I think could only properly be applied to God. Mm -hmm. If you like want to talk in those terms, no matter what terms we're talking in, that's kind of how I would look at it because everything else is by nature defined and thus restricted by the fact that it's real in the sense that it was created. So whatever is like going to be the source or whatever of that is then naturally must be the only thing you could term infinite. It was a reason I heard someone, there was like a problem with calling things infinite numbers in mathematics because it's metaphysically incoherent and that in fact you should call them indefinite numbers because really the truth about them is that you don't know where they stop, but it's not that they don't stop because by their very nature they stop. So I think when I think in terms of like infinity, and I think probably what he's really asking is not really this at all, but more of a like, symbolic gestures towards mm -hmm. the infinite that we can encounter artistically or in the contemplation of like a landscape, you know, or like the sky, the wide sky of Wyoming. And you're like, wow, you know, like I feel something numinous yeah, here. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And that was I mean, my experience definitely. in Mexico. Yeah, totally. Oh yeah. There's really nothing like, I think, the desert in terms of getting a sense of like these vast spaces that you can barely behold. It's very, it's very like Kantian sublime mm -hmm. where it's like I can barely take this all in enough at once to not just feel my faculties overwhelmed yeah. by something that is like manifestly greater than myself. And, you know, in turn, suggesting something greater than that, like that kind of sublime experience, I think. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's certainly real. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, we just be we be doing Anselm out here. God is bigger <laughs> than the biggest thought that you can think of. And so infinity will always. To believe in it, I I'm, agree with John. God has to be is you know a part of that understanding that at all so yeah in terms of like lasting renderings of the infinite so i would say like okay there are there's maybe a good infinity and a bad infinity i think the bad infinities are nowhere wrought better than in the work of borges 
I think is like absolute terror at the problem of the infinite is palpable, real, and I think has deep resonance for the world we live in today. Especially stuff on like the Library of Babel, that story. But if I'm thinking of the good infinite, you know, Carl Phillips, one of my favorite living American poets, asks a simple question where he says, is it the branch in full bloom in spring or its bareness and simplicity in winter that's more beautiful? <laughs> For those who can't see, John is like smiling in a very pleased way right now yeah. with that question. <laughs> Um, And I know that there's probably a way that I could like explicate why exactly I think that is a representation of uh, the good infinite, but I think the type of undecidability and almost like parallax nature of beauty that is inexhaustible is bound up in that. And that that can be found in something so simple as a branch. I think that's it for me. Yeah. it feels like some like Japanese or Korean poem in a way where there's mm-hmm. just like evanescence is like the ever present thing of contemplation and so much of it. And, you know, like flower metaphors, the yeah. fact that they bloom, but then they won't again. And it's like, Oh, or, you know, <laughs> there is a, Oh, oh there is, I yeah like that's probably what I have enough experience with to at least mention stuff like various bits of haiku that are more contemplative than funny which some are just kind of like funny but some are oh yeah like obviously this is a this is something that's about to die or something and it's so beautiful (laughs) but I think in all that and like deeply contemplating the evanescent the unspoken thing is always the non-evanescent that like you're being reminded of by that mm-hmm. and sort of like this greater thing. But you, I think the truth of negative theology and poetry and every kind of way we have to talk about stuff is the fact that it's very difficult to directly mention. So you only mention it by not mentioning it. It's like the Tao Te Ching or something, you know, like you're talking around it if you try to talk about it in some way or another. Yes, I think like I don't know why, but I keep thinking about uh, the Pillow Book. Yeah, <laughs> which I can't remember which century it's written in, but it's written by like a Japanese woman. She's a courtier in the imperial court, and it's just got these wonderful little snapshots. Uh, it's basically her diary, and there's just almost these aphoristic, impressionistic things of and you just find yourself agreeing with her even though she's just like asserting something about like a tr- <laughs> she's like it is so annoying when the bo- dogs bark incessantly on a hot day and you're like yeah it, that is annoying <laughs> you know? so she's like it is wonderful when the handsome general comes in from the cold and his cheeks are red and you're like I too think that's wonderful oh, with the handsome general's red cheeks <laughs> yeah there's something <laughs> vivid about it yeah and, and, and the it's vividness just is enough. like the argument yeah, yeah exactly exactly <laughs> yeah it's the universal through the specific i think 
So I think like a good way to, where to look for ways to interrogate this is Calvino's unfinished uh, series of essays, six memos for the new millennium. There are only five. He died before he could finish the last. And it goes into some of these qualities of literature far better than I ever could. But it touches on things like the numinous, on the concept of lightness, which all dance around infinity. And it imbues canonical texts with a sort of, I think, yeah, effervescent, like spiritual continuity is the sense you get when you read that. So it's a short book too. So worth checking out. I guess I'm, my brief offerings in the world of visual art would be like a lot of Islamic architecture. I guess art and architecture aren't that distinct mm-hmm. pre-modern times. So you look at like a nice mosque, there'll be yeah. some art on it it'll be very, it'll all be non-representational. So in a way, it'll be quite like interestingly pseudo-modern in the way that it will be gesturing towards some kind of infinitude in these um, geometric sort of things that they like to play with. So I think looking at those buildings, actually, some of them are pretty like phenomenal. And if you got to go Mm -hmm. to one, that would really be like it uh, in terms of that. That's our other, I also like the like, heroic male landscape artists of the west of america hell yeah dude hell yeah well i also like the 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 i mean if you look at a good georgia o'keefe from the west oh yeah i mean her santa fe period is like buddy like i didn't really get it until i lived out there and then i was like her eye i mean just really something else or i was talking who was i talking to about this the other day when i go to lacma with my wife there's like one painting that i always need to see and it's like Cezanne's like bowl of peaches or something like that and it just like mm-hmm. f- like just fucking destroys my life every mm-hmm. time i see it it just ruins me it's like so perfect it's like that dude saw the like platonic form of whatever the <laughs> spiritual like element of this like bowl of fruit like it's just insurpassable Insurpassable. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there. Like, so thanks for the question, Carlo. I hope, I don't know, maybe we addressed what you're talking about. Either way, I hope it was uh, helpful and thought provoking. So, we're going to move on to another question from a guy named John. This was not covertly submitted by John, <laughs> my co host. Okay. He says, what marks have y'all read? And what do you think about the dialectical materialist method and the Marxist concept of class struggle? As a Marxist, I love your pod and would really love it if y'all did some eps on Marx and Marxism or reading of the manifesto or civil war in France or some chapters of capital. Any chance that could happen? I want to know how quote unquote monotone John, whom I love, but respond to it. And then he says, I've been hiking the Continental Divide Trail for 2,000 miles and your pod has given me laughs, entertainment, and thought-provoking no-bullshit analysis. Thank you. So, listener John, first of all, stay safe out there while you're hiking. I'm glad that we could be companions with you on that. And thank you for the compliments. I'm glad you've gotten so much out of what we've done. So, I guess I will not immediately defer this to John and answer by saying that I have read Capital Volume 1, I have read the early economic manuscripts on the Jewish question, the class struggles in France, the 18th Brumaire, the German ideology, and 
obviously the manifesto and then like a handful of excerpts and other things. I could not tell you like what dialectical materialism is though. I don't think that ever was like totally clear to me in the same way that like Hegel's idealist dialectic process was never like fully clear to me either. It has always been difficult for me to grasp. I've honestly, like, I've read, obviously, a fair chunk of Marx. I can tell you that I have probably never enjoyed a single moment of it, aside from whatever sick burns he was laying down in the footnotes, at which he was, like, insurpassable. That isn't to say that I haven't learned a lot from him and appreciate him and take a lot from his thought. I think our penchant for anchoring things in, quote-unquote, material elements of our society comes from an indebtedness to Marx, at least for me. What do I think about his theory of class struggle? I mean, that's a theory of history. Like, look, I don't really know if the progressive idea of history is like actual, or if I can historicize Marx, he is one of many respondents to the dawn of modernity, which is now grinding to a halt and reaching a state of stagnation. Perhaps he saw that coming. I mean, People attribute or debate over what you can attribute to Marx to the extent that like, I don't really know anymore. I find the like Marxism discourse very confusing. Most leftists that seem to abide by what they would call a dialectical materialism really mean that they understand how, I don't know, class interacts with electoral politics. But you know, uh, a lot of these people seem divorced from how like major industries work or whatever. I don't know if that's part of dialectical materialism. Maybe it is. Because like I said, I just haven't been able to grasp it. Though I greatly admire what Marx was able to do. And as I said, he's made an indelible imprint on my parsing of the world. Yeah, I definitely... I was trying to remember what I've read and I can't remember what it all was because it was a smattering of the essays and excerpts. Like opening a book and reading five pages and putting it down, <laughs> that sort of thing. It was all done like 10 years ago, pretty right. much. And I read more of like Lenin and Stalin and Mao. Yeah, you did. Lean Biao, whoever else, I don't know. There's all, like, you know, you get on Marxist.org and you start surfing, which there's some interesting people on there. Mm -hmm. Who was the, who was the like decorative arts guy from England? Oh gosh, he did all the patterns. He had like a printing press for like antiquarian, like medieval looking manuscripts. William Morris. Mm. Now there's an interesting guy. He was like a committed socialist, but also like, you know, loves Vikings, Englishman awesome. type of dude. <laughs> so he, he married both of those in an interesting way, but we we're talking about Mark, so. Yeah, I haven't read that much of him. I probably read more secondary literature about him over the years mm -hmm. than I actually read him directly. So his influence on me definitely exists, but there's like some degrees of separation from him in my direct contacts, mostly, I would say. The way that I understand him is kind of to be a little reductionist. He's like the really interesting version of like what happens if a guy read Adam Smith and Ricardo and Hegel. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like weaving things together out of that, out of all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, his, um, I think his brilliance is, I think anybody who honestly reads him is astounded, frankly, at his synthetic ability. <laughs> the last thing of his I read, I think was he was like describing 
Schelling giving some speech or something in, mm-hmm. in Germany when he was like kind of doing some kind of ascendance in his career finally as an older person or something. And all I remember is that he had some really like intense owns for oh, like I'm a sure handful of people <laughs> yeah. in it. And that's pretty much all I got out of it that I could like retain. But yeah, I mean, so I would certainly be interested in reading more of him. I have not for a very long time seen myself as somehow internal to some kind of ideology that he represents or mm-hmm. like a member of. Yeah, I mean... I. I couldn't tell you what dialectical materialism is either in like a nice definition, but I probably am not a subscriber of it. You know, I'm not really a materialist. So that would just be the easy way to answer that. Yeah, I think speak on, it, I, speak on it. I like, I don't disallow non-material things in terms of that kind of thing. There is a great, I think it was well put. There's a, there's like a Harvard history of China. And they have a bunch of books for like different dynasties or sometimes two dynasties, one book. And I think in the one for the Ming and the Yuan dynasty, which was like the Mongols and then the Mongols getting overthrown and then the Ming being in charge. And there's like a Canada Mike was talking to me about it. And he was like, yeah, there's a passage in it where he says, people back then believed in dragons and thought they saw them. I don't know what that means. We're just going to treat it as if it was going on and like talk about it in that way. Like we don't have to, we don't have to come down on the reality of that or not, or try and subjugate a people who are no longer alive to our regime of rationality as if that could somehow be like, you know, relevant Mm -hmm. to, to studying how they were understanding something. And I think that, that and kind of encounter with that sort of historical perspective because I, I saw much the same thing when there started to be in the study of like the early middle ages more of a willingness to make use of saints lives because initially it was just like uncritically use them and then it was like oh they're all lies we can't trust anything in them and then there was kind of a somewhere in between those two things in terms mm-hmm. of treating them as a historical source but I think that what all of this is kind of like getting comfortable with ambiguity Mm -hmm. and getting comfortable with the fact that things are certainly possible that I have never seen or experienced. So that in brief is how I became a non-materialist. I mean, well, if I really talked about it, then I would seem crazy. So I won't get into demons or angels. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's in terms of like whether or not we'd read Marx on the show, if we're going to read anything, it'd probably be one of his shorter works. It might We could probably get the most mileage out of like either the German ideology or the 18th Brumaire if we were to do that. Um, yeah, I think that, I think both of those would be fun because they're both the like things that I should eventually read or reread. Yeah, column yeah. for Marx. Totally. I'm also under the impression that he needs to be retranslated in English. I not that I know a lick of German. Yeah, but I just feel like maybe this is me just being a little whiner, but like <laughs> I was putting side by side a translation I have of the Peloponnesian War that was written in the Victorian era and one that was written more recently. And obviously the prose was easier to handle than the more recent one. And there were exchanges, there was a great beauty to that. But that yet again, if you can 
compare that Victorian one to say Hobbes's translation of the Peloponnesian War, you've got a whole other series of problems on your hand. So it's been a long time since anybody's translated Marx into English, as far as I know, and it would be nice to see someone try their hand at it. I think that would be good. I also think that it would create a revived discussion on the interpretation of Marx in English, which I would also be happy to see, even if I would never want to participate in that. That makes a lot of sense. Like newer translations are definitely not always better, but I yeah. think they're always valuable because and, yep. you have yet another thing to then look at. Totally. And that's, so even if somebody did something and you were like, well, that's a lot of things you did are wrong and they suck. At least they provided you with something else to then look at if you can't, if you can't read the original. So yeah, I've never thought about that, which is weird, but you're right. Like it would kind of make sense for that to be revisited. I think we're overdue, frankly. And I encourage anybody who's trying to do that. Okay. So I think this is the last question I have. Hi, Emmett and John. Congratulations on a year of the podcast and thank you for all the episodes you've put out today. Well, thank you. Exhaust has been one of the biggest influences on my thinking over the past year, particularly ideas around preserving things for future generations. I can't tell you how heartening it is to read that. That makes <laughs> us both very happy. Following the death of Giancarlo de Trapano of Tyrant Books in March, I've been thinking a lot about how such ideas apply to literature. I'd be very interested in any thoughts you have on the future of literature, writing, fiction, books in general, and its place within the culture. Also, you have to choose a novel. If you had to choose a novel from the 21st century to add to the American canon, what's it going to be? Have either of you read A Preparation for the Next Life by Atticus Lip? That gets my uh, parenthetical very English vote. I hope this finds you both well. Here's to many more years of exhaust. Stay safe out there, Adam. No, you stay safe out there, Adam. Thank you so much for the lovely and interesting question. I am unfamiliar with Tyrant Books, though I do understand that Di Trapano was quite the force in what he was doing and that Tyrant was probably very important. I have to tell you that I am quite disconnected from the current ongoings of the American literary world, having found most of it distasteful while I was trying to be a creator of literature and while I was selling books. That isn't to say that there aren't good contemporary artists, maybe some even worthy of being added to that they are just distant from my awareness. But if I had to pick anybody that I think should be in there, I guess I would probably pick Jim Shepard. Obviously, I'm a huge fan of his. I think his latest novel is kind of disappointing. I couldn't really read much of it. I think it's a low point for his style and sort of shows he might be a little out of ideas. However, I think his short fiction is excellent and at least two of his novels, The Book of Aaron and Project X are better than good, if not great. I'm pretty sure some of his short fiction is like great and deserves to enter the pantheon of American literature. Yeah. Oh, I have not read Preparation for the Next Life by Atticus Lich. Lish. I don't know if you have, John. I haven't, but... I kind of want to check it out now. Um, I'll remember it, and if I ever run into it and the, the, mood, the feeling strikes me, maybe I'll pick it up. Yeah. Which, if you're a reader, you understand that's the best promise any other reader can give you about reading a <laughs> yeah, book that absolutely. you suggested them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, you already know, but... Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know. That's that's, that's a tough uh, question. Yeah, I'm pretty similarly to you. I don't really know a lot about what's going on. I have, you know, I know people who are much more well-read in contemporary fiction than I am for sure. I think some of it sounds like it's probably pretty good and some of it sounds like it's not so good, which is true of any time when there's mm -hmm. tons of writing going on. The only recent fiction that I've really read was all translated from either Korean or Japanese because I'm a loser. <laughs> <laughs> what I will and, say, hold on. I just want to interrupt for a second. Yeah. One book that I think should be entered into the Western canon is actually Elena Ferrante's Neapolitan cycle. All four of those books, that cycle taken in its entirety is one of the best literary explorations of friendship and a human life through changes in history that I've ever read. I think it is, it's up there. It should be up there. I was, I feel I am heartened by its very existence. Let me put it that way. I have not even heard of that, but resounding. Yeah. I recommendation. Yeah. Once you read the first one, you literally cannot. And the thing is, is that, I mean, the third one I think is a little bit, it drags, but the thing about it is that like, it manages to be both, you can read it as a light fiction or a serious literature quote, quote you know, in other words, mm -hmm. the plot is compelling. The dramas are compelling enough that you're just like, oh my God, I can't like, you're just like plowing through the book. But then there are descriptions of feelings basically which is really hard to do and psychological responses to things that are like so perfect uh, mm. that like when you read Dostoevsky you're like this person has some telepathic inclinations <laughs> in terms of their access to the inner workings of the human mind no, that's I mean that's that sounds fascinating I haven't read a lot of recent fiction so I'll have to keep that on the list because I wouldn't want to try and get back into it and read a crappy book and be like, okay, that was a mistake. So that yeah, sounds yeah. nice if I ever try to. Yeah. My Brilliant Friend is the name of the first book. A hideous okay. covers put out by Europa Editions. I once got into a fight on Twitter with the like head design guy over at Europa because I was roasting them for having just the shittiest looking books I'd ever seen. And he was like, I was a bookseller. They're the weirdly bad. <laughs> Yeah. And Aren't he was they? like, yeah. And he was just like, actually like we're referencing like the like dime store books of great literature you used to be able to buy at the grocery store. I was like, your books are $20 for a paperback. You're not <laughs> selling the same product. Like they're well-made books. They could at least not look like shit. And then he was like, well, you know, there's like a almost pornographic element to how like designed book covers look. I was like, yeah, I'm not asking you to like create art objects. I'm asking for this to not be hideous. <laughs> He's like, actually, I think if you understand the Byung-Chul Hanian negativity at play here, it's actually creating distance yeah. between you and thus reviving aura. I was like, yeah, no, this looks like clip art made on fucking the free version of Canva, you psychopath. Uh. <laughs> like, what is wrong with you? These could just be plain covers and it would be fine. You know, he didn't want to hear that. So anyway. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Well, my two book, books that I've loved that are recent, they're not eligible for the American canon because 
somewhere deep down, I'm like a, a Poe cosmopolitan reader. So mm. this is world literature. It belongs to all of us in some respect. Han Kong's The Vegetarian. That's a book from Korean, translated from the Korean. Yeah. And it's kind of, I think it's for distinct stories that all revolve around one woman from different people's perspectives as she kind of slowly descends into herself it gets really weird and it's kind of just like giving you an interesting look at at least a blurb would be like a female korean perspective with a little bit of like magical realism or something like that yeah yeah it was profoundly strange and disturbing by the yeah. My wife, my wife said it really weirded her out. She read it and then she immediately like got rid of the book because she was like, it was like <laughs> too much. She yeah, was like it was just, good. She was like, but I will never read that again, <laughs> and I want it out of this house. <laughs> yeah, it's I, it was definitely uh, I would say an achievement, and uh, the other one uh, would be. There is a Japanese writer who's been getting pretty famous for like the last 10 years called Mieko Kawakami. And she has a few things out in English now. But one I just read was called Breasts and Eggs. And that's actually like weirdly, there is a novella she wrote like a decade ago. And then she wrote like a novel and then put them both like smash them together. Whoa. With like a one page that's like, okay, new, new section. And that's how you just separate the two. The novella half is like, I think, at least in the English stylistically, like so good and so tight and like very impressionistic, like you might expect from a Japanese novel in certain ways. And then I got into the novel section. And at first I was a little like jarred by how different it was because it was written like so long after the novella was, even though it was kind of continuing that story. But once I was able to look at it on its own terms, it was... I don't. I found it very like quietly moving. Is, is how I would call it. It's but the point is really not the plot, so it's even not even really a point going into that. It's just like it's a good read, and you know, it's not to say anything about it. But you know, the only like recent fiction I've enjoyed has been like works of quote unquote feminist literature from <laughs> yeah. from East Asia. It's but it's Asia. like yeah, that's you just go where the truth is, I guess, uh, yes, artistically yeah, or otherwise. To, yeah. And Hold on, let me grab something real quick. have to fix that in post um, <laughs> but I was thinking about one of my favorite novels maybe ever but that has come out and I'm pretty sure this novel was like likely commissioned by the CIA or something but it's really good <laughs> it's it's Adam Johnson's the orphan master's son which takes place in North Korea and I think it's just astounding and I'm trying to find one of my favorite parts of it here which i think like given the like weird snitch panopticon that we are creating in our society is like worth thinking about 
while I look for that, we can answer Adam's other question, which is like what we think the role of mm. literature is in society today. I don't know if I have anything even semi-formed on that, but I'm interested in contemplating it. Do you have any thoughts? I guess in the spirit of the podcast, I would have to think about that somewhat historically. I would probably understand that to mean, you know, like there was a moment where the novel happened and then it became very important in mass culture. It was like fundamentally created it in some ways, like the proliferation of the novel, mass printing, much more writing going on than ever before and rising literacy rates and all that kind of thing, at least in the European and American context. And so like a novel comes out and it could be like a big deal in terms of like society might somehow change. This is like, you know, the sorrows of young Werther, like that was like a profoundly influential book socially and like legendarily Napoleon sleeping with it next to his pillow or something like it's, I think that, you know, Probably this is a banal observation, but like literature has no longer occupies that space in society. And at a certain point, probably around the 20th century, especially the further into TV we got, novels were more or less relegated to their various genre ghettos. Or I would say, like, we'll say literary fiction, you know, it's the consumer label. It does happen to somewhat correspond with like, certain qualities that I would say are definitely objective and that are not usually found in like the science fiction fantasy section. <laughs> so I'm not going to say that it's only a consumer label. It's a consumer <laughs> yeah. label that happens to correspond to like things that are real, but nonetheless, it's kind of, it's like the hot topic sort of thing where it's like you go to the section that's made for you because of who you are. Like it's been folded into the whole identity consumer thing. And so people will kind of self-select or sort of as like, oh, I'm a reader of this or whatever. So I'll read these books. So then the reach of books is really confined to like a subculture now of our society. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's very difficult to say that under those circumstances, how meaningful it could be on a social scale, which maybe it doesn't need to be and shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. It certainly is not going to be anymore. I mean, that's, I'll just go ahead and say that I don't think there's going to be like a literary resurgence or anything in terms of a reading public that is going to have some kind of like big tent titles that they're all going to be aware of at the same time. Because, mm -hmm. you know, if you, not that I'm saying like we need a great books education or I don't even want to talk about that, but just saying <laughs> that when there was one somewhat, then it was sort of at least like education forced everybody of a certain class, at least who went to like university or whatever prep school, they all were at least going to have to be familiar with the same stuff and thus mm -hmm. could have like a common parlance of like, you know, casually referencing the Aeneid or something. And that more or less is now also a subculture and not really required. Like we're not predicating your social advancement as like an administrator or governor or something on whether or not you memorize significant sections of Homer mm. anymore. 
which that was kind of the defining imperial ideology of like the British Empire was you can't govern if you can't read Latin and Greek. Obviously. Yeah, right, exactly. And, and you couldn't so, read the great books that would allow you to think about how to govern. You could never rule in India without that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or in Confucian China. Like, I mean, so much of that was anchored in a type of scholarship. Yeah, I think it would be that's something I've thought about is like in the late Roman Empire, it was a kind of similar situation where you had an elite almost entirely defined by the fact that they had a literary education and could write very long poetic letters to one another in a very, I think, artificial, like not, you know, like an artificial style as in it's like it's very affected and only for writing that kind of thing. And then with, with the end of the Western Empire, they just like disappear very quickly. Yeah. And so a warrior elite takes over. But so there are periods where like letters are seemingly to wrap this all up into some kind of meaningful point. <laughs> very socially significant in ways that might even seem strange to us. Like, I don't think it would be easy for us to really understand today what it would mean that like really in order to be a part of the like Uber elite, you had to like be hyper familiar with like Virgil and Cicero. Yeah. I mean, I'll put it this way. Like, you know, there's a book someone recommended to me on this very topic called highbrow lowbrow, which is about the creation of cultural elitism in America. And one of the things it looks at is how ubiquitous Shakespeare was in American culture across class lines in the 19th century. And that slowly that starts to change. That's interesting enough that I definitely need to pick that up to better understand how to even answer this question. Because in order to say like, what role do I think it should play? I would like to have a better understanding of what role it has played, which I think something is John, John is touching on here. Obviously, it's been quite significant, but the nature of that significance and how it has changed and maybe even shapes my understanding of it without even knowing it is, is important to consider. Well, on that note, just for anyone who's among the interested, there's a good book, I'll try and find it, about like working class self-education in England, maybe. Yeah, I, I saw that book came out not too long ago, right? And it was like, you know, there were guys who were working in mines dying with every man's library editions of Thucydides oh. in their pocket and stuff. Yeah, I think that like the general verdict of that book that was by the late 19th century, those people like probably had a better education than most of the elite. Cause I guess by that time, like literary education was already kind of going down the tubes in favor of whatever. But yeah, it was I interesting mean, to look at how, because I think that one of the, one of the sort of interesting propositions of that book is that a lot of the English working class were not really that interested in the, overtures of like Marxist intellectuals to them because they saw them immediately as sort of weirdly paternalistic about like, like you need to stop spending so much time on like these bourgeois artifacts and begin to study the revolutionary science. Yeah. And like, until you do that, you'll never understand. And you have to listen to me really, mm -hmm. which is, you know, like easy to see that happening. And I think they were very unimpressed with that because of the fact that they had achieved for themselves some kind of commanding understanding of like 
the canon greek and latin stuff history yeah. whatever you like they you know i would say that if you wanted to make some kind of argument for the fact that there's some kind of like you know i don't want to say the word empowering because it's almost cheap these days but it is sort of like to use that in the way that maybe would just be very neutral like you can be empowered by the knowledge that you have doing something like that if you want to and then the social repercussions of that are that you don't get on board with some kind of like, you know, Marxist British thing going on. Right, right. You. Yeah, yeah. And you, because you already have like obtained your own forms of self organization and self education, which is, you know, certainly interesting. Well, I guess right. Just, and you also may not want to like completely change the entire society around you, you know, or like, yeah. I mean, I think that's another thing that is like a healthy skepticism from people against revolutionary ambitions is that uh, yeah. to, quote, to quote the who they have a good sense of you know meet the new boss same as the old boss <laughs> <laughs> uh, way about them you know yeah definitely i guess we have i barely touched on it and i don't think i could but i kind of agree generally with the idea and amusing ourselves to death is that it just you know the like there was a yeah. There, there is a time when like just technologically, fundamentally, we were like more of a text-based society in a lot of ways, like stated in that way. I think that's generally pretty agreeable to anybody and that due to, you know, technological changes, we are now very largely an image-based society. And I think given that fact, it is difficult to imagine what like the future place of text will be for us. It'll definitely be I think interpenetrated with the image moving or not, as we have like memes, you know, Brad Trammell has like a new art report yeah. out recently where it's all about how me, like how did memes replace fine art? Essentially is what he's talking about, but I got it. Yeah. I, I think friend of the show, Sterling Bartlett, who we've had on told me that I need to check that out. I'm no longer a Patreon subscriber to Trammell. Um, I've been thinking not about that he's, not that he's not worth subscribing to. Brad's great. I appreciate everything that he does, but I really need to watch this video is what I'm gleaning here. Yeah. So yeah, I guess that's my like disconnected thoughts. I'm going to close out with this moment from the orphan master's son. So this follows a few characters in North Korea. One of them is like a master of interrogation who now has a very complicated relationship with his parents because everyone knows that he basically is like a snitch for a living, you know, and that is part of his job is to inform on people, to mentally, physically coerce them to do what the state wants. You can imagine how being maybe a little bit too honest or even misspeaking might get you in trouble with your own son, right? So he's just had that type of interaction with his parents, notably his father in the kitchen. And then he goes into this reverie and thinking about it. He says, there is a talk that every father has with his son in which he brings the child to understand that there are ways we must act, things we must say, but inside, we are still us. We are family. I was eight when my father had this talk with me. We were under a tree on Morinbong Hill. He told me that there was a path set out for us. On it, we had to do everything 
the signs commanded and heed all the announcements along the way. Even if we walk this path side by side, he said, we must act alone on the outside while on the inside we would be holding hands. On Sundays, the factories were closed so the air was clear and I could imagine this path ahead stretching across the Taidong Valley, a path lined with willows and vaulted by singular white clouds moving as a group. We ate berry-flavored ices and listened to the sounds of old men at their Changi boards and slapping cards in a spirited game of Go Stop. Soon my thoughts were of toy sailboats, like the ones the Yangban kids were playing with at the pond. But my father was still walking me down that path. My father said to me, I denounce this boy for having a blue tongue. We laughed. I pointed at my father. This citizen eats mustard. I had recently tried mustard root for the first time, and the look on my face made my parents laugh. Everything mustard was now funny to me. My father addressed an invisible authority in the air. This boy has counter-revolutionary thoughts about mustard. He should be sent to a mustard seed farm to correct his mustardy thinking. This dad eats pickle ice with mustard poop, I said. That was a good one. Now take my hand, he told me. I put my small hand in his and then his mouth became sharp with hate. He shouted, I denounce this citizen as an imperialist puppet who should be remanded to stand trial for crimes against the state. His face was red, venomous. I have witnessed him spew capitalist diatribes in an effort to poison our minds with his traitorous filth. The old men turned from their game to observe us. I was terrified, on the verge of crying. My father said, See, my mouth said that, but my hand was holding yours. If your mother ever must say something like that to me in order to protect the two of you, know that inside she and I are holding hands. And if someday you must say something like that to me, I will know it's not really you. That's inside. Inside is where the son and the father will always be holding hands. He reached out and ruffled my hair. Yeah, that's devastating. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's kudos like, to the CIA. Yeah, it's like perfect prose. It's so good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I highly recommend that novel. I think we should be careful what we think about North Korea, but you can read that, and then you can follow it up with the dose of Bruce Cummings' North Korea. Yes, uh, absolutely. A nonfiction work on yeah. perhaps some other realities. Exactly. Though Adam Johnson would be the first to admit that he dabbles in a little bit of magical realism in this novel because he has to figure out how to write a world that he literally cannot access. So with that, thank you guys so much for the questions. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. We appreciate it. Happy one year. Stay safe out there. And we'll see you next time. That was pretty fun.